The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. Something else is going on here, something big. Kate, I need to show you something. I noticed something when I was watching earlier, so I went to watch this whole video. We have a problem, a new problem. This is Stone back when he was just holding them all hostage. This is him later and later. His asthma's getting worse. It's not just his asthma. It looks like he has fever and chills. It's only a matter of time before he's not able to think clearly. The man is sick, and he's getting sicker with flu-like symptoms. Flu-like symptoms? I, I castled that case. Paul Reeves was investigating a missing flu virus. This is all connected somehow. It has to be. Welcome everyone. It is Thursday, May the 14th, 2020. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing, it's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. The fact that the vast majority of us are still in lockdown mode is unconscionable to me. And of course, I've been calling for a quick and immediate end to this illegitimate and rights-violating shutdown for several weeks now. And quite frankly, I don't know why everything isn't already allowed to be open and why we can't go back to living our normal lives. But apparently, some people are saying that we'll never be able to go back to anything we could call normal. And that's just one of a number of COVID-19-related issues that we'll be exploring today, right after our reminder that you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. Hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave. Follow us and like us on your favorite podcast platform, and visit us at www.justrightmedia.org, where you can access all of Just Right's social media links, and our archived broadcasts. And of course, be sure to offer your financial support to our efforts. Everyone who donates $25 or more will receive a copy of our 52-page full-color publication, Climate Essentials, written by one of our regular guests, Dave Plum. It's the biggest question on everyone's minds when it comes to the COVID-19 pandemic. Will we ever get back to something we could call normal? Well, here's an interesting take on that question that I found in one of the very few sane editorials that I've ever run across in the London Free Press in a long time. Headline reads, This lean, frightening time is new, but it will never be normal. Written by Randall Denley, an Ottawa political commentator and author, whose commentary appeared in the May 6th edition of our own London Free Press, and I quote, One of the many annoying aspects of this challenging time is the sudden explosion of the term, the new normal. Many of the people using it seem to think they've come up with something clever, perhaps even profound. Actually, it's both witless and inaccurate. While this lean and frightening time is new, it's definitely not normal and it's not going to become normal. There are simply too many powerful forces aligned against that outcome. Numbers alone would tell us that this so-called normality is not sustainable. More than one million Ontarians have been laid off and are uncertain when, or if, they will ever get back to work. The federal government can't cover the costs of a dramatically reduced economy indefinitely, and keeping two million Ontario school children out of school 
limits parents' ability to work. When the provincial government created its list of essential businesses, it omitted pretty much all of the consumer economy, save for places selling food. In a country where nearly 60% of our economy is created by personal consumption, that's a recipe for economic collapse. The arguments against calling this mess normal aren't just economic, however. The old normal was normal because most of us liked it. Back then, normal meant having a job, freedom to go where we wanted, the chance for a bit of travel, and the ability to visit family and friends. However, it would be difficult to identify a single everyday experience in this abnormal new world that is superior to what we had earlier this year. The only shopping we have is food shopping, and that's a far from pleasant experience, what with queuing to get into stores and rushing to get out. The only people who really seem to be thriving on pandemic-driven change are those who believe the world as it was needs to alter drastically according to their own personal preference. The media are full of predictions and prescriptions for how the world should change. But the one idea that is truly dangerous is the notion that the pandemic shows we need bigger, more powerful government all the time. It's a startling argument in a period when government has failed to provide protective equipment, failed to protect people in long-term care, failed to provide adequate hospital capacity, adopted a haphazard but costly economic shutdown, and taken away people's basic freedoms without even blinking an eye. When we look back at this pandemic, we will see a failure of government, not a triumph. Sadly, that's normal, not new, end quote. <laughs> Boy, that's for sure. And therein lies the real thing that we should all be fearing. Not surprisingly, there are a growing number of people who are coming to the conclusion that this whole pandemic crisis was manufactured for the very purpose of enlarging the power and influence of government. And while there's no denying that our governments have grossly overstepped their rightful democratic bounds in a free society, that's not something we need to fear with respect to the future, because the future in this regard has already come and gone. The very fact that the government has already done the unthinkable means that the power to do so already exists now. And whatever we might call the new normal in acknowledging this reality is really just acknowledging what has already been the old normal, but we just didn't know about it. But the new, new normal is about more than just ever-increasing state power and dysfunctional economies. It's about what that state power will be directed towards. And a lot of the talk now, especially from the mainstream media and the left and our politicians and medical bureaucrats, is that we should expect to subject ourselves to a never-ending process of physical distancing, expect wave after wave of new virus strains, and all with no end in sight until some kind of magic bullet arrives on the scene, namely a vaccine that is developed. And that vaccine narrative is a form of fake news, I've come to conclude. And apparently any narratives that get in the way of this fake news narrative are finding themselves disappearing from our view and increasingly difficult to access. You may recall that two weeks ago we featured some audio bites in which two California doctors, Dr. Dan Erickson and Dr. Artin Masihi, challenged the notion of ever finding an effective vaccine for the SARS-CoV-2. The virologist accused no one of being wrong or right, but simply wanted to let people know about the wide discrepancy that existed between what they were seeing in their practice and what the media and political narrative about the viral crisis was. 
Well, sure enough, by the time we aired our selection of their comments two weeks ago, that video was removed from the YouTube platform where it first appeared. Quote, this video has been removed for violating YouTube's community guidelines, end quote, reads the screen that comes up if you try to link to the original. Yet there was nothing the doctor said that anyone could cite as being false or even inappropriate according to YouTube's own guidelines, as several other bloggers and podcasters have already very clearly demonstrated. Well, sure enough, YouTube's done it again, this time removing the video of yet another virologist who had a similar viewpoint as that of the two doctors. It, too, was taken down by YouTube with the warning that this video has been removed for violating YouTube's community guidelines. And it's a video that had just been brought to my attention only days before its removal when Robert Vaughn sent me a link to the original along with his emailed comment, quote, it gets worse, end quote. The link Robert sent me took me to a YouTube video produced by Pandora's Mouth and was called Plandemic, the Global Plan to Take Control of Our Lives, which sounds conspiratorial enough, and to be sure, there was indeed an explicit conspiracy being revealed. The video posted on May 4th featured an interview with Dr. Judy Mikovits, Ph.D., who has just recently released her book, Plague of Corruption, Restoring Faith in the Promise of Science. And it's a book in which she says she names names and implicates, among others, Anthony Fauci in having a conflict of interest with respect to the COVID-19 advice he is giving to President Trump and the U.S. administration. She also accuses Fauci of directing a cover-up regarding his own acquiring of various patents for viral vaccines, a process that led to the treatment delay of millions of people suffering from HIV-AIDS back in the 1980s. In 1982, she was 25 years old and was part of the team that isolated HIV from the saliva and blood of patients from France in what was called a confirmatory study. Now, if my understanding is correct, Dr. Mikovits alleges that Fauci caused a delay in the confirmation to give him time to acquire a patent for the vaccine, and that delay took two years two years during which Dr. Mikovits alleges millions died unnecessarily from AIDS when a treatment could have been administered much earlier. Now, I'll leave it to her book, Plague of Corruption, to offer all the names and details of this particular situation and scandal, quite frankly, if true. The complicated story involves how patents are awarded for vaccines and how this, in turn, leads to a complete corruption of the science and scientific community surrounding the study of viruses. But again, I'm going to leave it up to her book to properly lay out the details of the plague of corruption that Dr. Mikovits reveals in her book of the same name. Because believe it or not, that wasn't the part of her interview that most interested me. What I found most interesting were her views on the COVID-19 pandemic itself and how, just as with doctors Dan Erickson and Artin Masihi, her advice on how to best deal with the virus was almost the exact opposite of what all of the so-called expert medical authorities are advising. So, given the sinister interests who do not want you to hear what Dr. Mikovits has to say, I feel almost obligated to do the opposite and resist. After all, since the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, we've entertained several different narratives and theories about how this whole crisis came to be and what is driving the shutdown. So here she is, Dr. Judy Mikovits, in our own selected excerpt from the May 4th YouTube posting that sadly is no longer available. However, I understand that you might be able to find the interview in its entirety 
on other platforms. Dr. Judy Mikovits has been called one of the most accomplished scientists of her generation. Her 1991 doctoral thesis revolutionized the treatment of HIV-AIDS. At the height of her career, Dr. Mikovits published a blockbuster article in the journal Science. The controversial article sent shockwaves through the scientific community as it revealed that the common use of animal and human fetal tissues were unleashing devastating plagues of chronic diseases. For exposing their deadly secrets, the minions of Big Pharma waged war on Dr. Mikovits, destroying her good name, career, and personal life. Now, as the fate of nations hang in the balance, Dr. Mikovits is naming names of those behind the plague of corruption that places all human life in danger. Normalcy only returns when we largely vaccinated the entire global population. If we activate mandatory vaccines globally, I imagine these people stand to make hundreds of billions of dollars that own the vaccines. And they'll kill millions as they already have with their vaccines. There is no vaccine currently on the schedule for any RNA virus that works. So I have to ask you, are you anti-vaccine? Oh, absolutely not. I'm, in fact, vaccine is immune therapy, uh, just like interferon alpha is immune therapy. So I'm not anti-vaccine. My job is to develop immune therapies. That's what vaccines are. Do you believe that this virus was created in a laboratory? I wouldn't use the word created, but you can't say naturally occurring if it was by way of the laboratory. So it's very clear this virus was manipulated, These, this family of viruses was manipulated and studied in a laboratory where the animals were taken into the laboratory and this is what was released, whether deliberate or not. That cannot be naturally occurring. Somebody didn't go to a market, get a bat, the virus didn't jump directly to humans. That's not how it works. That's accelerated viral evolution. If it was a natural occurrence, it would take it up to 800 years to occur. This occurred from SARS-1 within a decade. That's not, that's not naturally occurring. And do you have any ideas of where this occurred? Oh, yeah. I'm sure it occurred between the North Carolina Laboratories, Fort Detrick, the U.S. Army Research Institute of Infectious Disease, and the Wuhan Laboratory. $3.7 million flowed from the National Institutes of Health here in the U.S. to the Wuhan lab in China, the same lab where many people have said that this coronavirus infection first originated. We also now know that NIAID, the department associated with the National Institutes of Health, of which Dr. Anthony Fauci is in control, had already been conducting experiments with the Wuhan lab in the past in regard to coronavirus. If Dr. Anthony Fauci cannot be honest with the public about his connection to this lab, then Fauci has to go. In 1999, I was working in Fort Detrick in USAMRID there, and my job was to teach Ebola how to infect human cells without killing them. Ebola couldn't infect human cells until we took it in the laboratories and talked to him. It's hard to ignore the death tolls. People have been dying. They are dying from this in, in quite alarming numbers. How do you reconcile that? Uh, um, it, it's pretty easy when you see, um, for me, when you see what the government has done, and that is that they took 
quoting Dr. Burks. We've taken a, a very, very liberal, liberal approach. approach to mortality. If my husband were to die, who has COPD, his lungs have fibrosis, his lungs would look exactly like somebody with COVID-19, theoretically, but he has no evidence of infection. So if you're not testing and you don't have evidence of infection, and if you walked in there today, you know, they'd call it COVID-19. And, and we hear this from the doctors and nurses who are upset. I've seen so many doctors online that have made their own webcam videos just perplexed by the protocol that the CDC had given them. Well, last Friday, I received a seven-page document that sort of told me that if I had an 86-year-old patient that had pneumonia but was never tested for COVID-19, but sometime after she came down with pneumonia, we learned that she had been exposed to her son who had no symptoms, but later on was identified with COVID-19, that it would be appropriate to diagnose on the death certificate COVID-19. When I'm writing up my death report, I'm being pressured to add COVID. Why is that? Why are we being pressured to add COVID to maybe increase the numbers and make it look a little bit worse than it is? I think so. Why would they want to skew the number of deaths due to COVID-19? Well, fear is a great way to control people. And sometimes people's ability to think for themselves is paralyzed if they're frightened enough. And that's not where I want people to be. I want people to say, we're gonna get through this. I'm gonna use my head. I'm gonna go to different sources. I'm gonna listen to different sources. And I'm gonna think for myself because that's what America's about. If someone dies with COVID-19, we are counting that as a COVID-19 death. You don't die with an infection. You die from an infection. I've talked with doctors who have admitted that they are being incentivized to list patients that are sick or have died with COVID-19. Yeah, $13,000 for Medicare, if you call it COVID-19. Right now, Medicare has determined that if you have a COVID-19 admission to the hospital, you'll get paid $13,000. If that COVID-19 patient goes on a ventilator, you get $39,000, three times as much. And you've killed them with the ventilator because you gave them the wrong treatment. All the things that just don't make sense, the patients I'm seeing in front of me, the lungs I'm trying to improve, have led me to believe that we are operating under a medical paradigm that is untrue. And I fear that this misguided treatment will lead to a tremendous amount of harm to a great number of people in a very short time. My next question is about Italy. I want to know why Italy was hit so hard. Italy has a, a very old population. Um, they're very sick with inflammatory disorders. They got, at the beginning of 2019, an untested new form of influenza vaccine that had four different strains of influenza, including the highly pathogenic H1N1. That vaccine was grown in a cell line, a dog cell line. Dogs have lots of coronaviruses, and that's why they're not testing there. You could just say, oh, it was that. As the country begins emerging from the worst of the coronavirus epidemic, one question remains. What happened to all the hydroxychloroquine? We know that hydrochloroquine and zinc are working 
great for patients. And then Fauci comes out and says, well, there's no double-blind controlled placebo study, which, by the way, Dr. Fauci, is there going to be a double-blind controlled placebo study of your vaccine? Is there? In a survey polling nearly 2,300 doctors in some 30 countries, hydroxychloroquine was ranked as the most effective medication to treat the virus. The AMA was saying, you know, doctors will lose their license if they use hydroxychloroquine, the anti-malarial drug that's been on the list of essential medicine worldwide for 70 years. Dr. Fauci calls that anecdotal data. It's not storytelling if we have thousands of pages of data saying it's effective against these families of viruses. For 50 cents a dose, we could protect a thousand people for seven days, two doses a day, with one $600 vial. And that hasn't been done. This is essential medicine, and they keep it from the people. Not only now, but back in autism with our discovery, there was an old antiviral drug, 100-year-old drug called Suramin, on the WHO list of essential medicine. It literally gave kids with autism a voice, a life. What did Bayer and Monsanto do? They took it away from everybody. You couldn't get it to save your life right now, and we tried. Believe me, every way we could. So when you take away a medicine, um, and, and not just the, the not just the WHO, not just the WHO, the FDA, the CDC, Tony Fauci, close everything just end it all and we've got a healthy world again and we got tons of money because we can take all that money they're making on their patents and we can give it to the victims of this plague of corruption. Is it safe to say that anything that cannot be patented has been shut down intentionally because there's no way to profit from it? All these natural remedies that we have had for ever. Absolutely, that's fair to say and that's exactly what's going on in COVID-19. The game is to prevent the therapies till everyone is infected and push the vaccines knowing that the flu vaccines increase the odds by 36% of getting COVID-19. Where does that data come from? A publication last year where the military who had been vaccinated with influenza were more susceptible to coronaviruses. Coronaviruses are in every animal. So if you've ever had a flu vaccine, you were injected with coronaviruses. And then to put on a mask. This doesn't make any sense. We wear masks in an acute setting to protect us. We're not wearing masks. Why is that? Because we understand microbiology, we understand immunology, and we want strong immune systems. Our immune system is used to touching. We share bacteria, staphylococcal, streptococcal bacteria, viruses. We develop an immune response daily to this stuff. When you take that away from me, my immune system drops. As I shelter in place, my immune system drops. You keep me there for months, it drops more. And now I'm at home hand washing vigorously, washing the counters, worried about things that are indeed what I need to survive. You're not, you're not immunodeficient and you're not uh, elderly. You should be able to go out without any gloves and without a mask. I think if you are those things, you should either shelter in place or wear a mask and gloves. I don't think everybody needs to wear a mask and gloves because it reduces your bacterial flora. It doesn't allow you to interact with society and your bacteria flora and your viruses, your friends that protect you from other diseases, 
end up going away, and now you're more likely to get opportunistic infections, infections that are hoping you don't have your good bugs fighting for you, if that makes sense. And then as we all come out of shelter in place with a lower immune system and start trading viruses and bacteria, what do you think is going to happen? Disease is going to spike. I guarantee when we reopen, there's going to be a huge, huge amount of illness that's going to be rampant. The building blocks of your immune system is virus and bacteria. End of story. Wearing the mask literally activates your own virus. You're getting sick from your own reactivated coronavirus expressions. And if it happens to be SARS-CoV-2, then you've got a big problem. You're, you're not the first virologist who has told me that we're doing the exact opposite of what we should be doing to contain and to create immunity from this virus. Why would you close the beach? You've got sequences in the soil, in the sand. You've got healing microbes in the ocean, in the salt water. That's insanity. Yeah, there's a lot of insanity going around with respect to this whole COVID-19 pandemic, particularly the way people are being forced to line up and socially distance in grocery stores. I find that more demeaning than almost anything else I've experienced through this. And exactly how is forcing people to stand in a line for an incredible length of time, reducing their personal contact when normal shopping habits would get you in and out of the store in a fraction of the time? The fact that drugs like hydroxychloroquine and other treatments for the virus have been so avoided is telling. In the same way that the Canadian Medical Association advised Canadian doctors not to prescribe the drug for COVID-19 sufferers, who would have guessed that the American Medical Association was telling their doctors the same thing, despite President Donald Trump's endorsement of the treatment and despite the fact that many doctors worldwide are routinely using that same drug in this regard with great success? It almost sounds like a conspiracy of some sort, doesn't it? But consider if even one or two of her contentions proved to be the fact of the matter. For example, there's no vaccine for any RNA virus that works. Well, that alone would pretty much make our current strategy completely useless, wouldn't it? That Fauci has already been conducting coronavirus experiments with the Wuhan lab. Well, if that's true, that's more than alarming. and happens to be consistent, I hate to say, with other information surfacing about Fauci, including some research I saw being done by the likes of people like Laura Lynn Tyler Thompson and Frank Vaughn, people who are really into this issue. And this is interesting, that the common use of animal and human fetal tissues were unleashing devastating plagues of chronic diseases. And that's a man-made cause. This, I, that's what she's saying here. A lot of these diseases are not natural and never were. And this is scary, that the reason the thing broke out in Italy is because the Italians got an untested new form of influenza vaccine early in 2019 that had four different strains of influenza, including the highly pathogenic H1N1. That is alarming beyond belief. And it sure explains a lot in terms of that. I mean, we've heard a number of different explanations for these same phenomenon. And yet, you know, none of them really contradict the others. The dots are all the same. Just how they're connected is a little wee bit different. And the whole idea that they're taking away medicines like hydroxychloroquine. How interesting. Just this past week, I watched a YouTube video produced by Laura Lynn Tyler Thompson in which she was simply trying to get some zinc, 
which is often administered with the hydroxychloroquine, but which is also strangely out of supply in her area of Vancouver, where she lives. And she was taking her camera around and going into the stores and trying to find out why there was a shortage of this and getting very suspicious about it in the process. But when we hear a stat like $13,000 Medicare payment for any diagnosis of COVID-19 or a $39,000 payment for anyone who's put on a ventilator, and as she said, and you've killed them with the ventilator because you're giving them the wrong treatment, well, that surely helps explain a lot of the phony statistics we've been getting about the COVID-19 spread, doesn't it? Just follow the money, isn't that what they say? And she's not the first person to bring to light economic incentives of this sort. And by the way, this is exactly the same scenario as painted by our own anonymous dispatcher letting us know what's been happening on the front lines inside an Ontario hospital, ICU, and emergency department. Now, had Dr. Mikovits' video been removed by YouTube in isolation, it might have been an, a little understandable, given that she was explicitly naming individuals in her expose about what she calls a plague of corruption. But then, on what grounds did YouTube remove the video news conference featuring doctors Erickson and Masihi, who made no such arguments or accusations? Those guys went out of their way not to insist that they were right and others were wrong. And by the way, two of the voices you heard in that last audio bite were those two doctors. So what are they all saying in common that certain interests do not want us to hear? Well, for example, that there will likely never be a vaccine that's effective. That all of the physical distancing and wearing of gloves and masks are not only unnecessary for most people, but also harmful. An opinion, by the way, shared by everyone I personally know who has ever worked in a hospital. That hospitals are empty, awaiting a first pandemic wave that never materialized. I'm hearing this over and over and over again. And it's, it's right across the continent. It's not just a local phenomenon. And that shutdowns have no appreciable effect on the national statistical realities of COVID-19 cases and deaths, at least as we're seeing it so far. That testing is being shown to be a waste of time since the test is only good on the day it was taken. It can already be wrong within hours after having been taken. You go down to the hospital, you take a test, you walk outside and you walk past someone with COVID-19. Already your test is inaccurate. That ventilators and other invasive procedures are deadly for most COVID-19 patients. Well, that's exactly what Anon kept telling us since day one of this pandemic. That hospitals are more interested in getting their government grants and fees for identifying individuals as COVID sufferers and for putting them on ventilators rather than being interested in getting them the best treatment available. That's outrageous. You know, especially under socialized medicine, don't you think? Wouldn't you think under socialized medicine these problems would go away? Was, weren't financial incentives supposed to be among the things that socialized medicine was supposed to you know, do away with? And of course that there are other effective treatments for the virus other than taking the risky and untried vaccine route. You know, when she said the game is to prevent the therapies until everyone's infected and pointed out how flu vaccines increase the odds by 36% of getting COVID-19, that's a pretty devastating statistic if that is also verifiable. 
Here again is Dr. Judy Mikovits, and consider the irony and tragedy of the opening comment you're about to hear, given that this interview has already been taken down by YouTube. There is no dissenting voices allowed anymore in this free country, which is something I never thought I would live to see. Uh, nor would I accept what I've experienced since 2011. It's beyond comprehension how a society can be so fooled that the types of propaganda continue to where they're just driving us to hate each other. You want to go to work yes. and get this disease? Uh, I think the medical profession know what they're They've talking about. They've been wrong so far, ma'am. They've been wrong. Hopefully, this is the wake-up call of all America to realize this makes no sense and, and we win because it will take down the whole program with information like this. And, and for me, it's the great news that the doctors are waking up and saying, wait a minute. You, you doctors that are watching this, and I see a lot of you right here, why are you not getting loud? I'm here to defend you. I'm here to defend my freedoms. I'm here to defend my family's freedoms, my patients' rights to choose what to do with their life. I'm just blown away, and I'm blown away why there are not more doctors like me talking about this all over the place. We should be banding together right now. You need to wake up because your liberties are getting taken away from you all because of fake news that's out there. This is wrong. People should be going to jail for this stuff. So it's not the scientists who are in any way dishonest. They're listening to people who for more than 40 years have controlled who gets funded, what gets published. And I'm sorry to say many, many people will simply take the money and the fame and that support, things that absolutely aren't true. What do you say to the medical professionals that are just beginning to get a glimpse of the depth to which they have been misled and steered away from their oath to do no harm. I say forgive yourselves. It, it's the hardest thing to realize for all of us and is, is that with all the best intention, we studied, we learned what we thought was the truth. We had no idea that, that the, the data that we were being told was true was not true. We've been taught now in our, in our schools a very different science. You don't get funded if you don't speak the party line. You don't get published. That was probably the hardest thing for me to take is understanding that scientific journals would, would twist the discovery that should have healed all. Will the scientific community have the courage to answer the question of whether these diseases might have been of their own creation? Thank you. So what we did pretty much ever since I got out of jail, we started an education company. We wake up doctors, and it's very difficult. But every doctor who realized they may have been part of the problem has now turned that around to march toward a better society and restore faith in the promise of medicine. That's all we can do. The idea that we are now a few days away from a new administration Given, as you heard from the introduction, that I have been around for a while and have had the opportunity of serving in five administrations, I thought I would bring that perspective to the topic today, is the issue of pandemic uh, preparedness. And if there's one message 
that I want to leave with you today is that there is no question that there will be a surprise outbreak. The thing we're extraordinarily confident about is that we are going to see this in the next few years. Thank you. Hey, Hami. What's up? We took down Stone. Nobody's hurt, everybody's fine. It's over. It's not over, man. What? What do you mean it's not over? I don't want a ticker tape parade or anything like that, but did you not just hear what I said? Listen, Javi, this is about more than a suicide vest. The CDC turned up a lethal variant of the H5N1 virus in Stone's apartment. It's a hot zone. Stone's infected. And everyone around him might be too. I got the door open, I got it. Close that door! I said close it now! Nobody leaves the train! Sir, how is Esposito? Well, he and the others were transported to the hospital, but they're in isolation. What's the prognosis? Well, this particular strain of H5N1 is lethal and can be spread through airborne contact. But there is a vaccine. It's been given to the passengers, and it can knock down the virus even after exposure. So he's going to be okay? Doctors are optimistic, and the CDC is retracing Stone's steps to identify who else he was in contact with. This guy's like an evil version of Typhoid Mary. The suicide vest, the demands, all about exposing people long enough to get them infected so they spread the virus. Well, it could have been far worse if he had made it to that seminar or the opera. In proximity to all those people, he could have caused an epidemic. But I, I, I'm still not clear. How does our shooting victim fit into all this? Paul Reeves was investigating the lab where a sample of H5N1 went missing. We think he figured out that Stone had stolen the virus, which is why Stone lured him into the park and killed him. <coughs> You're not the priest. No, but I can take your confession. We know you had help, Mr. Stone. All I wanted was to see her free. More like you wanted to get people sick. What do you mean? You tried to start an epidemic by spreading your deadly virus. Aaron was just a sideshow. What are you talking about? The opera, the seminar, hundreds of one percenters in close proximity. That was the perfect environment to spread your disease. It, disease, no, I... So I was set up. Somebody used me. This thing I have, I may have given it to other people too. That is not how I imagined that conversation would go. If Stone's telling the truth, then he's a fall guy. He was groomed, turned into a vector for the virus, and manipulated into spreading it. Which means this all connects to Paul Reeves' investigation of the lab where the virus came from. Stone was deliberately infected. The CDC confirmed that someone turned his asthma inhaler into a virus delivery system. Question is, who came up with that idea? Well, the answer's got to be connected to this lab that Paul was investigating. I think it is. Becca, take a look at this. The uh, lab from which the virus went missing, uh, Latham Pharmaceuticals, they're the same company that makes the vaccine that Espo and the others got. Which is why they had samples of H5N1 in the first place. Right, but as part of his investigation, Paul was looking into production orders of the vaccine, specifically this one, for 10 million units of the vaccine. Castle, 
There were only a thousand reported cases of H5N1 worldwide. So why would Latham suddenly order up 10 million vaccines? Unless they knew that there was going to be an outbreak. I think Paul was asking the same question. Inquiring minds want to know, why is it that so many of the conspiracy theories around the virus have to do with some kind of extortion or blackmail attempt, one aimed at making those who hold the vaccine very rich or powerful? A couple of weeks ago, we featured a discussion about the Epoch Times story tying the SARS-CoV-2 virus to the Wuhan lab and noting how China was a major producer of the vaccines and medicines that we consume in the West. There was talk that China would hold us hostage by withholding the cures we needed. We also entertained the narrative offered by former military intelligence officer John Loftus, who argued that the real name of the COVID-19 virus was Chimera, and it was created as a bioweapon in a Russian lab, not a Chinese one, but that the Russians released it in China. And why did they do that? So that the Chinese would be forced to buy tons of the vaccine that the Russians already had in stock. It's a lot more complicated than that, but you can check out our episode entitled Corona Conspiracies for more details on that one. And now on today's show, we've heard from Dr. Judy Mikovits, who has argued that private interests in partnership with governments, or at least with the sanction of governments, also want to corner the viral market on vaccines. And then, to top it all off, there I am, innocently watching a relaxing episode of the TV series Castle, and up pops yet another story about a scheme to cash in on a viral pandemic by selling vaccines to the victims. Am I missing out on some kind of universal get-rich-quick scheme here? <laughs> if I am, be sure to sign me up for the next big viral pandemic, okay? But you've got to admit, as an advertising campaign for your vaccine forcing people to stay home and listen to endless government propaganda about how developing a vaccine is the only key to their future freedom, well, that's a pretty clever and effective way to go about it, don't you think? <laughs> yeah, I may make fun, but don't make the mistake of dismissing each of these narratives out of hand. To begin with, based on the established and undisputed facts thus far, none of these differing narratives really contradict those facts or really contradict what the other is saying. They could all be true, partially true, or completely false. You and I aren't in a position to say unless we were there, or otherwise had some independent and objective way to verify a particular narrative. But significantly, not one of the narratives we've entertained, nor dozens of others I've run across, have ever disagreed that the SARS-CoV-2 virus is very different from other known viruses. But whether it was produced in a lab or not, whether it was released accidentally or as a passive-aggressive act of war, the virus will have to be dealt with on its own terms. It seems to me that we already have this one well in hand, thanks to treatments available that do not require vaccination. But playing into fears about a constant unknown future based on second and third waves of a mutating virus cannot possibly be the basis of extending this social and economic shutdown. People forget that when it comes to so-called mutating viruses, that most of the mutations result in a weaker version of the virus, which is one of the reasons why so many viruses die out. And I am so sick and tired of hearing that all of the relevant crises faced by people today are quote-unquote due to the COVID-19 virus. They are not. The truth is that they are due to the government-imposed shutdown, something that could be ended with the proverbial stroke of a pen. 
And all this talk about a controlled recovery or a managed return to normalcy is even more scary than the original complete shutdown. Partial shutdowns managed by politicians is nothing short of fascism. Earlier on the show today, I pointed out that we don't have to worry about the future, the new normal, as being one with a government that controls everything. The fact that this shutdown even happened is all the proof we need to know that the supreme state is already here, and that this was already the old normal for quite a long time. Every day that the government delays in lifting all of its prohibitions and controls is a day nearer to the entrenchment of state powers that we cannot even begin to imagine unless you've had the misfortune of having lived under a completely socialist or communist state. So even as I continue to call for ending this unprecedented and unconscionable lockdown, I know that not everyone agrees, such as writer Jonathan Kay, whose May 8th commentary, penforquillette.com, begins with the headline, Enough with the phony lockdown debate. And I quote, There's a funny satirical article that's been making the rounds titled, Graph Lover Doesn't Want This Crap to End. I will confess that it hits very close to home, and I realize that many readers may have already had it up to the gills with the graphical depictions of COVID-19's health and socioeconomic effects. But some of us are even more exasperated with the overheated politics surrounding the phony lockdown debate, the running, rolling, hyper-politicized argument about when and how governments should continue to lift the restrictions put in place during March and April. But lockdown orders have tended to ratify public behavior as much as prescribe or circumscribe it. For example, most Swedes didn't need their government to tell them to stay home. Like everyone else, they get their news from the globalized data dump and anxiety mill known as social media. They all saw what was happening in Italy and elsewhere. And this is why I find the lockdown debate so phony. It's been fueled on both sides by the presumption that government decrees work as a sort of magic wand that will bring our economies back to life. But the data suggests there is no magic wand. Much of the lockdown effect was imposed not by top-down fiat, but through millions of small decisions made every day by civic groups, employers, unions, trade associations, school boards, and most importantly, ordinary people. An understanding of the crowdsourced nature of the lockdown seems absent from a lot of the most detailed lockdown commentary. To repeat, the analytical mistakes being made here are not unique to those of lockdown proponents or skeptics. Both sides systematically overestimate the role of government. Little of this self-imposed lockdown is going to change in coming weeks and months regardless of what the government does, even as the masks come off and the floor dots start to fade. But whatever your views... If you're all in a fuss about lockdown policy, please remember that the real lockdown was never imposed by government. It turns out that it was inside each and every one of us all along, end quote. Holy cow, what a silly argument to make. You know, in a way I kind of agree with the unspoken sentiment in that no government imposed shutdown was necessary, but I totally disagree with this argument. The fact that lockdown orders have tended to ratify public behavior as much as prescribe or circumscribe it is not an argument that justifies the lockdown orders. Public behavior, when freely taken, is a completely different kind of behavior from that which has been forced. But to the distant observer, you know, like Bill staying at home because he's chosen to do so looks exactly the same as Tom staying at home because the law has forced him to do so. Lockdown orders have tended to ratify public behavior as much as prescribe it, he says. Well, this is simply not true when it comes to all of the small businesses and services that were put out of business by government edict. 
And when the businesses are closed, of course the public naturally can't go to such a business, so they quote-unquote voluntarily stay home, like duh. Now Kay is correct, however, when he cites the falsity of the presumption that government decrees work as a sort of magic wand that will bring our economies back to life. Well, that's because you can use force to kill a person, but you cannot use force to bring that person back to life. Just as life is a process of self-sustaining action, so too is a free economy, and that's why this shutdown has been a mistake from the beginning. There's nothing self-sustaining about an economy that's propped up by government subsidies, which all come as a consequence of the same use of state force. Like life, An economy is a process of self-sustaining action, which means it must be a free economy. In order to allow self-interest to be the fuel of that economy, you know, what altruists call selfishness as a pejorative. Adam Smith famously expounded on the economic principle at work here, but unfortunately, he used an altruistic moral argument that society would benefit when individuals acted in their own self-interest, as the justification for allowing individual freedom and self-interest to be the driving force of an economy. And even though it's true that society would benefit when individuals act in their own self-interest, it's a complete error to suggest that serving the general interest is the moral foundation of individual rights. That's just altruism disguised as philosophy. The reason that each individual should be allowed to act in his or her own self-interest is because they have a fundamental, inalienable right to do so. And if you want to understand the conflict between altruism and selfishness that recently found itself under the spotlight, thanks to the COVID-19 government shutdown, you have no further to look than at the story of the selfish hairstylist who was fined $7,000 and jailed for a week by a Texas judge for opening her hairstyle salon in defiance of the shutdown. The hairstylist, Shelley Luther, was fortunately quickly released by the governor of Texas after the glaring injustice of what was done to her came to public light. So coming up next from his May 6 online and YouTube commentary, Glenn Beck offers his views on both the story of the selfish hairstylist and on what Jonathan Kay has called a phony debate about the shutdown. I want to take you now to Dallas, Texas. Shelley Luther was a uh, was a woman here in Texas, and she's never had a run-in with a law. She's not a revolutionary. She's just a salon owner. And she got to a point where she couldn't keep her salon closed anymore. That you now see the error of your ways and understand that the society cannot function where one's own belief in a concept of liberty permits you to flaunt your disdain for the rulings of duly elected officials, that you owe an apology to the elected officials whom you disrespected, that you understand that the proper way in which in in an ordered society to engage concerns which you may have had is to hire a lawyer and advocate for change, an exception or an amendment to laws that you find offensive that you publicly state that this is the way that citizens in the state should behave. And now you're, you're putting her in jail because of, quote, her arrogance and her selfishness. Oh, she's selfish. Well, then the judge said to her, do you have anything to say uh, before I sentence you? And she said, yes, I do. Here is her comment. Judge, I would like to say that I have much respect for this court and laws and that I've never been been in this position before. 
and it's not some place that I want to be, but I have to disagree with you, sir, when I, when you say that I'm selfish because feeding my kids is not selfish. I have hairstylists that are going hungry because they'd rather feed their kids. So, sir, if you think the law is more important than kids getting fed, then please go ahead with your decision, but I am not going to shut the salon. He looks away from her when she says, I have to disagree with you. He is so pissed off at her. This is, I don't even recognize this. What are you doing? What the hell is our country doing right now? She's going out of business. She has no money. Her, her, her salon workers have no money. She obeyed for how many weeks? Six? There are many Americans who believe that we should have shut things down. We had no handle on this, on this disease. We had no idea what we were headed towards. It's not about the death. It's about overwhelming the system. Well, we didn't overwhelm the system. We did our job, and we did it voluntarily. You didn't have to tell us. We did it voluntarily. You should have suggested it. Do you know that if you talk to the, the hospitals and the nurses here in Dallas, Texas, you know they're laying people off Nurses, doctors, we didn't overwhelm the system. We have the capacity. People are not going to go out and be crazy because nobody wants to die and nobody wants to kill anybody else. And I don't have a right to be kept safe. In fact, I don't want you to lock me into a room to keep me safe. Anyone who is taking away my rights of freedom. I'm here at my house. I'm self-quarantined. But you're forcing me? Good for you, Glenn Beck. Unlike Jonathan Kay, Glenn Beck gets it. As we wind down today's show, just a few comments on Charlie Luther's brush with the law over the apparent issue of selfishness. Now, I totally agree with and support Shelley Luther's right to open her salon, and I admire her courage for standing her ground against what was an obvious injustice. But unfortunately, when she was making her defense, she made a serious error. She used the same argument of altruism to defend her selfish action as the judge used an argument of altruism to attack and condemn her selfish action. Quote, I have to disagree with you when you say that I'm selfish because feeding my kids is not selfish. I have hairstylists that are going hungry because they'd rather feed their kids. If you think the law is more important than kids being fed, then please go ahead with your decision, but I'm not going to shut the salon, end quote. Well, the problem is, Shelley Luther was acting selfishly and rightfully and properly so. She has every right in the world to take any peaceful action necessary to feed and house herself. But she appealed to an argument of altruism by saying she opened her salon to quote-unquote feed my kids. 
and that she was acting for the sake of her hairstylists, who similarly were portrayed as people who altruistically wanted to feed their kids. What Shelley Luther should have said to the judge was, Yes, Your Honor, I am acting in my own self-interest because it is my inalienable right to do so. And the, the irony here is that had she not acted selfishly, but altruistically, then she would surely have ended up obeying the order to stay shut down. Altruism is sacrifice. That was what was being asked of her. And here is a great example of how a person acting selfishly and working in their own self-interest ends up benefiting those around them who are also acting selfishly in a self-sustaining process that benefits what we abstractly call the general interest. Says the judge regarding the error of her ways, quote, society cannot function where one's own belief in a concept of liberty permits you to flaunt your disdain for, and you know what, at this point I thought he was going to say for the rule of law, but no, he said, for rulings of duly elected officials that you owe an apology to the elected official whom you just disrespected for flagrantly ignoring and defiling their orders, end quote. Now, that anyone who's a judge in the United States of America could even utter such words is outrageous and contemptible. He's telling a citizen that she should have to apologize to a politician for failing to obey that politician's whims, which is how these shutdowns were actually enacted and carried out with all the nonsense about essential and non-essential services, etc. Both the judge and the politicians alike here should be the ones to apologize to Shelley Luther. And then, to add utter insult to injury, the judge in this case actually pushed his political advice on her. Quote, You have to understand the proper way for an ordered society to engage concerns that you may have had is to hire a lawyer and to advocate for change. Advocate for an exception or an amendment to laws that you may find offensive, and that you publicly state that this is the way that citizens in this state should behave, end quote. Now, here we have a woman who's literally being locked up in jail and fined for simply trying to survive and sustain her life, and a judge tells her that if she objects to being subject to such tyrannical laws, that she should get a lawyer and argue for an exception to the law in order to be personally allowed to survive. And not only that, but that she should make a public statement advocating that all citizens should accept this tyranny. I don't think it's possible for me to overstate the contempt I have for his court. That judge was being a total a-hole. And in this case, A stands for altruistic. Well, we've come to the end of today's show, and as you know, I always make a point of inviting all of you to join us again for our next show. And my guess is that if you do choose to tune in to our next show, you're doing it for selfish reasons, whatever they might be. But if I ask you to tune in for altruistic reasons... That would mean that you were only doing it for me, and that you were either totally indifferent to, or might even, you know, might, might even hate the show. And I think that would be terrible, and I would never ask of you such a thing. And that's why right now, I am inviting you to selfishly join us again next week when we will continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. To black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be alright well, It's funny how Big Pharma is so evil Till now <laughs> It's like what is it $200 a pill Yeah that's good that's fine I'll take it. Give me all you got
But uh, and now I'm sniffling, and I don't know what that is. Could be the cocaine, I guess. <laughs> 